just going to dive in. And we'll, we'll, uh, of course. Podcast. We're gonna... fine. Exactly. Uh, welcome our guest today, Peter Asher, legendary multi-hyphenate human being from <laughs> manager to label uh, owner and runner to uh, producer to songwriter to artist himself. And uh, as you know, uh, I am at a critical point in my career right now. And Zach, tell them the premise of the series that we tell all of our guests. Yeah, basically, Jared, being a friend of mine, um, has been the number one jingle writer in the world for the past 10 yep. years and has since recently been hit with a little bit of a, you know, non-competitive agreement where he's not allowed to make jingles. So he needs a new job. And we've decided to track down the best of the best across the world in different industries from, you know, musicians to restaurateurs to actors to people who free wrongfully imprisoned criminals. We're not sure what his next job is going to be, but we're hoping that we can talk to people like you who have, you know, legendary careers and see if Jared might be able to, you know, step in a, a position that you may have and, you know, maybe continue on his path towards success. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> the most, the most challenging thing about Peter is that he has so many careers. So what do we even call you? What, what is your current uh, occupation that you uh, occupy? Well, it's a good question. Um, <laughs> at the moment, you know, the only thing I can really work on um, under all these circumstances is my radio show that I do. You know, I have this show, show and not that I can actually record them, though I'm going to soon, but because uh, I do that at a friend's house, but just writing them. And that at least is the one thing, you know, one can do under these conditions with you have a pencil and paper and a guitar and ideally even a computer. There's an awful lot you can do. So we count our blessings as to how deadly boring this would be if it were not for those modern inventions. So at least the pencil and paper have been around for a while. And the guitar, <laughs> I think of it. But, but uh, no, it, it's hard to say. I mean, that, that I'm very delighted at the fact that I've managed to have so many different jobs, um, in, you know, in the course of um, my life so far, and 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 make transitions between them. And indeed, uh, the one thing I, I can say for certain is that I never knew what was coming next. You know, some of them were ambitions and plans. Some of them were happy accidents. But in no case did it fail to come as a surprise when it actually happened. And uh, for anyone who uh, is not as enlightened as we are uh, in in your uh, path uh, since the beginning of your career, do you want to give us a quick highlight reel, taking us from the the beginning and just talk, wow. watching a few <laughs> for us? Because well, a well lot, yes, I, I'll and try. And we'll, I've, I've never really done a kind of potted version of the whole thing, but I'll give. I'll try. I <laughs> yeah. mean, my first lurch into show business was as a child actor. Actually, when oh. I was eight, I made my very first film. Um, uh, notable because uh, I was very, it was a British film made at Pinewood Studios. My father was played by a British actor called Jack Hawkins, who some of you might remember, who was in Bridge on the River Kwai. Oh, yeah. Arabia and all those movies, like mm -hmm. British military types. But much more exciting for me was that my mother was played by a genuine, gigantic American film star, Claudette Colbert. Oh, wow. And so I got to kiss Claudette Colbert at the age of eight, which was <laughs> all right. exciting. Um, Solid anyway, so start did, to the career. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I did that for a bit. Then I sort of stopped acting, took school a bit more seriously. Um, I, was, I was studying philosophy at London University when uh, I'd been singing with a friend of mine who I'd met at school uh, before university. And, and uh, we uh, got a record deal and uh, we made our first record and it went to number one all over the world. So suddenly that was a big change. So what I, was that? I, what was that song called? Yeah, will you hum a few bars of that one for us? Uh, please lock me away and don't allow the day 
here inside where I hide in my loneliness. I don't care what they say. I won't stay in a world without love. Oh, and yeah. That was written by Paul McCartney. Went to number one uh, all over the world. And so suddenly that was uh, a fairly significant change because, you know, one, one winter I was, you know, still a philosophy student at King's College London. You know, but that means that at the end of the winters, I was bicycling home from school in the afternoon in the dark, you know, by four o'clock in London in the winter, it's dark, in the rain. You know, and one year later, I'm driving down Sunset Boulevard in a rented Mustang convertible being recognized by beautiful women. And I had to say, this is better. You know, <laughs> this is an improvement. So, so that, was, that was career switch number one. I, I never did, I never did uh, get my degree. I suppose you'd have to describe me in American terms as a dropout at some point. So, um, and anyway, so I did that for a few years, enjoying being a pop star. And we had about 10 hits altogether, I think, and in the UK and the US and got to tour the world and so on. Uh, and then I met, uh, which is a whole other story unto itself, a uh, singer-songwriter called James Taylor, uh, who I was introduced to by a friend. I heard him. I loved him. I thought he was brilliant. I signed him. At the time, I just got a new job as head of A&R for the Beatles record label, Apple. Wow. So I was running the label. Um, so when I met James, I said, you know, look, I'm, you're brilliant. Coincidence, I've got this job. I can sign people to this new record label. Do you want a record deal? He said, yes, please. And I said, great. And uh, so I signed him to Apple um, and uh, made the first record in England. It didn't do particularly well, but some people noticed him. And then when Apple and the Beatles started to fall apart, I decided, James and I both decided to go back, go to America. In his case, back to America. In my case, I'd been there only to work and tour. I'd never lived there. But I sort of bet my career on his. We agreed that I'd become his manager as well as his record producer. And I continued in both those roles for about 25 years or so. Wow. So I moved to America and set up a management company and ended up managing... Um, James and um, Linda Ronstadt and Carol King and Joni Mitchell and Randy Newman and a bunch of other people. And, and so I did that for the next, you know, I don't know, 20 something years. Wow. And then I went, oh gosh. Then I was uh, vice president of Sony Music for a while. That's when I quit management and joined the, the dark side. Yeah. A record, com record company executive. And I and produced a lot of other people other than the ones I was managing. I did some records with Cher and Diana Ross and 10,000 Maniacs and Neil Diamond and all kinds of different people. Which 10,000 Maniacs one? I did In My Tribe and Blind okay. Man Zoo. Oh, wow. The two best ones, I would have. They By the way, the best Paul, ones. Paul, Paul, side note here, a, a Randy Newman's son is uh, one of the uh, staff members. I know, I know, I know. I saw him on, on copy on one of these things. And I was going, Amos, you know, what are you doing here? But, <laughs> uh, but um, yes, I love Amos. He's well, basically, I love you. He's doing what you did when you jumped over to the dark side. He's going from a podcast empire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, he's, and he's an agent. Yeah. <laughs> does it get any darker than yeah, that? Yeah, it doesn't get No, it does darker. not. No, it does not. <laughs> um, no, I loved Amos. He's brilliant. And I, I, you know, I knew him when he was Randy's kid. And uh, yeah, so, and then, you know, lately I've added a few other odd things. I've, I've gone back to performing quite a bit. I do a show on my own radio show I do once a week on Sirius XM. Oh, I listened to we've done, it. We've done oh, some of that right. into a book, which came mm -hmm. out. And, uh, and uh, then, the, you know, and so on. So, 
I guess that sort of brings us back. Well, yeah. if we start, I mean, if we, as fast as I can do there's, it. There's, there's a lot of meat on the bone there. I guess yeah. for, for, I think the thing that jumps <laughs> out the most that people will want to know about is, you know, obviously very, very, you know, strong ties to the Beatles between, yes. you know, your <clears> first <throat> hit being written by Paul to, you know, running Apple. Can you tell us, uh, you know, uh, how that all sort of just came about and um, how yes. you found yourself running Apple? Yes. Um, it, be- it began because, you know, my sister, when I started acting, so did my sister Jane, yep. uh, two years younger than me. So I was eight and she was six when she did her first film. And whereas my, my acting career sort of, should we say, elegantly tapered off um, uh, when I was around uh, 15 or so. And uh, Jane kept at it. She, she loved it. She was really good at it. She um, quit school at 15 completely and, and uh, devoted herself full-time to acting, became very successful, became a film star as well as being a well-renowned actress in London. And uh, she was invited in that capacity to go and see this band, the Beatles, who were just coming down to London for the very first time. Because everyone knew she loved music as well as being sort of a celeb. So she, she now started going on behalf of the magazine to go and write a review of the Beatles' first show in London. She did so. She was excited to go and see them. She, you know, she thought the band was great um, and loved the show. She was taken backstage as the visiting celebrity to meet them all afterwards. And... Uh, Liked them very much. She liked them very much. One, they liked her. One, one of them liked her in particular and asked her out. So that's how she ended up going out with Paul McCartney for several years. And one of the side effects of that was that Paul was hanging around our family home all the time. He was over for dinner and much more and, and ended up there so much that our parents took pity on him and offered him the guest room on the top floor of our house, an offer that he accepted and moved in. So he lived there uh, and the, the top floor was my bedroom and the guest bedroom. So he and I shared the top floor of the house for two years. So Wow, my sister dated know. my sister dated a manager of a like golf and stuff when she was <laughs> in like high school. Like totally different story. So what did you uh, get free free golf balls? Uh, yeah, well not I got like a discount. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so that's when I heard this song Well Without Love. And uh and it was a reject song. It was an orphan song. Paul had written it, hadn't finished it because John didn't like it. He thought the yeah. opening line, please lock me away, was ridiculous. And he would actually say, okay, I will. The song's over. And <laughs> so um, uh, I'd heard the song. And when Gordon and I quite separately, um, one night we were playing in the club, we were played every night. And an A&R guy from EMI Records called Norman Newell uh, signed us up and gave us a record deal. So I went back to Paul and said, you know, that unfinished song, is anything, is it spoken for? Is it still an orphan? And Paul said, it is. And I said, well, can we have it? He said, you can. And he, he made a little demo of it for me. I did have to prevail upon him to finish it in time for the session because he had no bridge. And uh, and uh, and and uh, he did. And, and, and you know, as I say, it, then that came out as our first single in February of 1964. Uh, 56 years ago, God help us all. And um, and uh, and that was the beginning. So that, that was the change. So that's how I got the song. And then he wrote a couple more for us later on. But that was on a more normal commercial basis. In other words, the sense, people sometimes say, how did you get so many songs out of the Beatles? The only getting part was Well Without Love. And that was the story I've just told you. Which, But, um, and people go, 
well, weren't Paul and John upset that they'd given away this song? No, not at all. The, it's, it's misunderstanding the dynamic of the, of the music business because they actually took songwriting equally seriously as their career as a band, if not more so. Uh, interestingly, this is a slight digression, but you'll see my point. Back in that era, we all got asked all the time one particular question. Every interview would include the question, and it happened to the Beatles as well. What are you going to do when this is all over? Because it was a certainty yeah. in the mind of the media mm -hmm. that a pop star career was like two years at maximum. Then you'd go back to being a milkman or whatever you were before. And uh, they would answer that question, we will be songwriters. Wow. Their, their idols were not only Elvis and Eddie Cochran. Their idols Nobody were King. Goffin and King, yeah. Lieber and Stoller. Man and while all the great songwriting teams who they emulated wanted to be. So for them, for Lennon McCartney, become a, a, a name as songwriters and later George Harrison as well, of course. Um, Lennon and McCartney built, built a name as songwriters, which is exactly what they wanted. So far from being like, why did we let that, why did we give away that song? They didn't give away anything. They wrote a big hit, made lots of money, and increased their, their well deserved reputation as brilliant songwriters. That's amazing. By the way, I saw an interview from uh, back in the day where I think Ringo said he wanted to be a hairdresser after. That's right. Yeah, he answered that question. We will be. A, I will be a hairdresser. Yeah. John and Paul, um, rather Song more ride. successfully. Yeah. I'm sure Ringo would have been a very good hairdresser. Yeah. But, he would have been but, great. Uh, <laughs> but he he never ne hasn't become necessary yet. <laughs> I love. Next time I see know, him, maybe I'll, I'll remind him. I I absolutely <laughs> love everything you know about the Beatles, and you know to me. I think every generation uh, since uh, yours has discovered them in their own way, you know, to the point where, you know, my daughter's name is McCartney. Uh, I yeah. have a son named Jude Harrison, but, um, you know, it must've been amazing. Like obviously hindsight is 2020, but when you were brought in to, to run Apple, what did you think at the time? Like, cause like, nobody had really done that before. Right. Like ours. No, no, well, Paul, Paul and I had, had numerous conversations about it. You know, it was their ambition to start this entertainment company that would be, a lot more friendly and artist, you know, the term artist friendly didn't exist at that point. Yeah. A decade later, all the labels were vying with each other to be the most artist friendly company. But EMI was run by this guy, Sir Joseph Lockwood, and was very serious in a suit. And, and the whole thing was run that way. As you probably know, the studio, the technicians wore white coats and there were rules about where you had to set the knobs. And, you know, life was organized. And Beatles had already broken the rules in the studio and they wanted to break the rules boardroom as well so they decided to start this label and i would spend a lot of time at that point paul had moved out obviously of our house as had i i was in my little flat nearby paul was in his beetle mansion in St. john's wood which he still has and and uh i'd spend many evenings over there talking about the label and at some point he said well uh, he knew that i wanted to be a record producer which is a separate story and he said, will you produce some records for the label? And I said, of course I will, honored. And he said, but then as it became more real, he said, would you like to be head of A&R for the label, which is wow. an old fashioned industry term, as you know. And I said, yes, that would be great. So that's what I became. And I was in on it before we officially started it. We started in Wigmore Street, then eventually moved to the, the headquarters, which became more legendary, Savile Row, where the concert was and everything. Wow. So yes, it was a very exciting yeah. time. It was great. And, and I would have, you know, I would have weekly A&R meetings with as many Beatles as could attend. And 
and uh, and so on, deciding what to sign and what kind of record was that? to make and so on. Did you guys sign Badfinger around that time? Yeah. Or am I, okay. Well, yes and no. I'll tell okay. you yes and no, because we signed the Ivies. Okay. Who became Badfinger one album later. Oh. Got it. Um, just a, a curiosity. They had one minor hit called Maybe Tomorrow in the UK as the, as, um, the Ivies. And then I think under the influences, I recall, of America, Capital didn't like the record and didn't like the name. So we decided to start all over again, make a whole new record, same band, uh, changed the name to Badfinger. And, and they had plenty of hits, as you know, yeah. became a very yeah. successful band. And did Paul write all of the, all of the music for that? Or just poured No, it? no, no. Uh, they wrote, don't forget, you know, they wrote Without You and things like that. You know, Ooh, and, I love that. And there was a massive Harry Nielsen hit, Mariah wow. Carey hit. They wow. wrote that. No, Tom, somebody else. Huge. Sorry. Forgot his name. Tom. Um, they had, it was a difficult, the, the band had a terrible, tragic history. Just suicides and misery oh. and abuse and all kinds of awful stuff happened. But the music was great. Yes, Paul produced and wrote some tracks with them. Uh, most notably, Come and Get It, which is a great, you know, if you I want it, here it is, come and get it. <laughs> I imagine yeah. that any band that comes within the orbit, though, of like doing stuff with the Beatles, that would always be maybe the story could somewhat overshadow it if someone like a Paul is involved in writing or producing, right? Yes, and but in that case, he made a demo uh, of the song, and the record he made with Badfinger is almost indistinguishable. <laughs> his demo, he, wow. <laughs> he definitely knew how he wanted it to be. You know, it, it, come, it came out his way. He's, he knew exactly what he wanted, and he was right. It was a big hit. What were some of the other acts that were signed to Apple during that period? Was Nielsen part of that or no? No, uh, he was a friend and all the Beatles admired him enormously, but he was never actually signed to Apple, I don't think. Um, the early signings were Mary Hopkin. Mm -hmm. Remember her? Those were the days, my friend, we thought they'd <laughs> never If you remember... That was a number one all over the place record. And what happened with that one was we saw her on television. Actually, Twiggy, our friend Twiggy, yeah. you know, back when there was only one supermodel in the world and it was Twiggy. <laughs> uh, she saw Mary on a talent show called Opportunity Knocks and called up Paul. They're, they're great friends. They still are. And Paul called me and we all watched her. She was singing, a, Mary was singing a Joan Baez song. But for Fortune, as I recall, and on this talent show, and uh, we all agreed she was great. We signed her up. I remember I went to Wales, where she lived, with Derek Taylor, another legendary figure who's worth looking yeah. up if you don't know about him. His book is brilliant. Uh, and we had to convince her, her father that we weren't, we really weren't in the white slave trade, that we actually were a record <laughs> label. He was incredibly suspicious. And, uh, and, um, uh, we signed him. What was interesting about that is Paul, when we signed it, already had in his head that song. Huh. Uh, he'd heard it in a nightclub six months earlier, a nightclub called The Blue Angel, and made a mental note of it. And he said, I know this song goes with the days. I heard these people do it at this nightclub. Let's find the song. I want to make a record of that with Mary. I helped him do it, but he produced it entirely. We used an instrument called the Cymbalom. I don't know if you're familiar with that. If you, ever, if you ever get to play the record, I'm going to play it, it after starts that. with that <laughs> ring, 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 ring. It's like a hammered dulcimer, but like built like a zither. And uh, <laughs> great sound. 
and we I found a cymbal on player, and uh, so and off we went. So that was Paul produced that. And it was a gigantic number one all over the world. Um, and you know, I know that obviously the much like any large corporation, the the sort of coming together of the Beatles had it uh, at some point. I guess everyone had to untether from each other in that world I, ever so slowly. When did um, you know people leave? You know that George and and Paul and John split up from the Apple world. I know that Apple still exists as like the home base for everything Beatles, but yes, at what point yes. did people start to just say, look, well, I mean, it all fell apart, you know, when the Beatles broke up. I mean, when I, I fell apart because of Alan Klein, mm. you know, this guy mm. who... The uh, man who sold the Beatles. He wanted to, you know, he was desperate to be the Beatles manager and take over. And uh, John swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. John, John's a very smart guy, but he, he Alan's act is a very good one. He, it's basically Alan would go, everyone would tell you that I'm awful and, you know, they'll, they'll tell bad stories about me and all that because I'm, I'm tough and I, the record companies all hate me and the managers all hate me, but that's because I'm the only person who's on your side. Mm. You know, I may be a bastard, but I'm your bastard. That, fear, mm. you know, and Alan was good at that. And it's what John felt they really needed. And Paul felt equally strongly that it wasn't what they needed. I think Paul was correct. So in the end, that's what, to my mind anyway, fell apart. And it meant that all the other arguments they were having uh, coalesced around this one issue. Right. And then ultimately, I guess, uh, during the, the period afterwards, I guess, was every business decision relating to licensing music, publishing, all that stuff, was that always decided by, um, you know, the like Paul and... The sort of the it, it was complicated. I mean, as you all know, once once the lawyers move in, life gets complicated and expensive, and and uh, and that's kind of what happened. You know, I, a well, lot's then, been written about. And then uh, take us to your uh, your era of the Linda Ronstadt. Um, you know, uh, your California. I guess you were living in California during that whole period. Yes, I moved here. Um, I was in when I first moved to America. I stopped in New York for a few couple of months. Because um, Ron Cass, my friend who'd been the business, had a business fest for Apple Records, we'd also go, uh, he was actually fired. Alan Klein fired everybody, except that the minute I knew Alan was coming, I'd resigned. So he was, um, actually wrote huh. a letter of resignation before Alan arrived. Um, but, uh, um, and James and I, as I say, left for California. I did stop in New York and I worked for MGM Records for about a month because Ron Cass had got a job at MGM. He said, do you want to come do a and at MGM? I said, if you'll buy me a ticket for myself and, and all my furniture and everything to come to America, I'll work anywhere you tell me to. Then By the way, money. shout out to MGM. They're our new investors. So. Yeah. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Peter, you're well, hitting all between, the points. Yeah, between Amos Newman and MGM, you're like practically in the company, Peter. Right. Well, <laughs> this was a different MGM, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. This was what The record label was famous for being completely uh. crooked, which it was. And <laughs> they would... <laughs> they were doing all the stuff where you sell things as cutouts that aren't really cutouts, and <laughs> well, I can explain it all. But uh, everyone knew it was a disaster area. And no sooner was I working there than that's when this guy, Kirk Kerkorian, bought MGM and put Mike Curb in charge of the record label, and he fired everybody. Wow. Um, like the Mike Curb, like Curb Records? Yes. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, so it was fine with me because I, I really only took the job to get to America. So yeah. I then moved to California. Um, 
and set up my management company. And when I say company, it was me in in uh, in my a rented house uh, in Hancock Park um, wow. and a telephone. That was it. And, uh, and you had ja- you had James only at just the time. James. Yeah, just James. How did you um, discover uh, Linda Ronstadt? Uh, I was in New York, and I mean, I didn't. Unlike James, she had a career going. I mean, not right. not not a big one, but I mean, she was she'd made a record and stuff, and and because um, of the Stone Ponies, right? Um, so, uh, but I was this was after the Stone Ponies. I was in New York, and somebody said you have to go and see this girl singing at the Bitter End. She's got the most amazing voice you'll ever hear in your life, and she's wonderful. And they did also mention that you know she sings very short shorts and barefoot and is incredibly hot. And so I said, okay, and went down there to see her and hear her. And every word was true. Um, and then I met her afterwards and discovered she's one of the most um, literate, well-read, highly intelligent, extraordinary women I've ever met in my whole life and, and remain so to this day. We're still friends and see each other as often as we can. And from my hometown. From Tucson. Yes. Nice. Right. Yeah. Which, yeah, yeah. Which is uh, which is where Paul McCartney lived for many years uh, as well. Her father had the uh, hardware store. Ronstadt Hardware was the yes. leading hardware store in Tucson, and her brother Pete was the chief of police. Yeah. Oh my God. So very much a hometown. And uh, uh, so that I first thing I did with Linda was help her finish the album she was making at the time called "Don't Cry Now," which was oh. it got a bit muddled. It had involved a couple of current or ex-boyfriends and producers <laughs> and it all got a bit involved and I helped to get that one finished and out and then uh, we decided to do the next one together from scratch and that was the one that was hard like a wheel that, that did well and changed things. Wow. Uh, As a Canadian, I, I have to ask about the Joni Mitchell of it all because uh, yeah. some of my favorite records of all time, but I mean... Uh, oh, without doubt. Were you working with her during the Blue uh Era. No, I, I was around then um, because uh, there was a period during that time when she and James Taylor were, 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 were together. And uh, so, yes, I got to know Joni very well as James's girlfriend at that, for that point in time. And I remember we were all in London at one point to do some TV shows or something. And she played some of the songs she'd just written for Blue uh, on the piano in this rented flat oh we were God. living in. And there was shortly, and, and Joni also remains a friend. I saw her about uh, three weeks ago, and she's doing fine. She's getting I, better all the time. That's good to hear. I love it's her. Extraordinary, because it, it was a brutal, yeah. um, what do you call it, aneurysm. And uh, she's she's pulled through with typical Joni uh, determination, and she's doing great. Wow. Um, and then, you know, over the last few years, you know, I since I've sort of uh, – you know, been entered into your orbit through like my friend Corey from Winston House. Yeah, you're you know a true entrepreneur doing everything. You you you're still touring. You're still doing uh, you know yes. production. You're still doing. What is it that drives you at this moment? Um, you know, that's every day you wake up and you're like, this is what I love doing right now. Yeah, exactly. It's a good it's a good question. I mean, I I get bored if I was doing nothing. I think is the simple answer. And I. I always, I seem to have a lot of ideas for stuff and, you know, even though things like the radio show can seem like a, a burden sometimes because, you know, you think an hour a week wasn't that much, but I mean, I've done 140 of them now and I have to sit, you know, and figure out what the hell I'm going to talk about each week. 
it, you know, how, how long can you talk about the Beatles for? Forever. It's a Tom forever. <laughs> exactly. But no, but in the end, uh, I enjoy very much. And that, you know, when someone goes, Oh, we think those, those shows you did, the alphabetical one should be a book. I went, Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, let's try that. And, uh, the book's on its third printing now, so that that was good, you know. And and, uh, and as I said, I used to like performing; it's fun. I didn't do it for a long time, and then I got back to it. I got back to it just a, like a year or two before Gordon died. Um, we hadn't worked together for thirty-seven years, and it was actually my friend Paul Schaefer, the keyboard brilliant keyboard player, wow. who um, who was was kind of was putting together a benefit for his friend Mike Smith. You might remember he was the keyboard player for the Dave Clark Five. Yeah, he was the guy playing the box organ and also the lead singer in the Dave Clark Five. Dave was the entrepreneur. Mike was the musical talent, and and uh, he'd had a terrible accident and needed help. So Paul Shaver called me up and said, "You know, we want to do a '60s themed benefit. What can I what can I say to get Peter and Gordon back together after 37 years?" And we just kind of thought, "What the hell?" Because we love Paul and love Mike, and so we did it, and. And that was the, you know, it, I admit that before we did it, I wasn't sure it was cool or not, you know. A couple of ancient guys singing ancient songs from their youth, you know, seemed a bit lame. But but uh, turns out when you do it and you watch the audience and you see how much it means to them, you know, and we get people cr- actually crying and stuff yeah. and going, that was the music, that was the song I proposed to my wife with, or mm. that was reminds me of this and you guys actually are the real guys doing it, you know, and still sounding like us. It, it seemed to mean a lot. So I kind of went, you know what? This is a respectable thing to do. Um, let's uh, do some more if, if they come up. So we did. And that continued until Gordon died um, just over 10 years ago now. And and then I was kind of going, well, what does that mean? I'm never going to sing these songs again or what? So I ended up inventing this show that's uh, sort of a one-man show, but with with a few musicians and with a lot of video and storytelling and multimedia stuff with we sync things up and it's, um, you know, and, and that's proved quite successful. So I continue to do that. In fact, it, the, the, where I should be now actually is doing sure. that show on a cruise ship. Well, thank God you're not there. Not surprisingly, <laughs> that was canceled. But um, yeah. Hopefully um, this will all lift soon and life will go back to normal. I will say, um, you know, we only have a few minutes left in the podcast, but just oh, like, wow. that was great. the time yeah. flew on this thing. I will yeah. tell you, A, I want your career of all the people I've spoken <laughs> so far. Yeah. Uh, so far, this lie. is, I'm not going to, this is the career like I, that I would have liked to have had, uh, you know, working with legends, you know, making history happen, being an artist, an entrepreneur, an author, uh, everything. And by the way, We'd love for you to bring some of those stories to life in our world at some point. And uh, the audio sure. world, we've, we've got to figure out how to do something with you because this is uh, beyond fascinating. And by the way, of all the people I've spoken to, and I've spoken to a lot of interesting people, this is the one that my dad, after, I'm going to have to have like a three-hour unwinding conversation after because <laughs> he's, he's your core audience. Uh, yes. Baby Boomer, you know, his all his stories are about the Beatles. I think he got married to... Uh, the song uh, is with my mom is Hey Jude, and they are total Beatle romantics and are very excited that I'm talking to you. <laughs> well, what's interesting Same now here. is some of those people's kids or grandkids 
and now you know the Beatles keep getting rediscovered, and you get like twelve-year-olds who know every Beatles song. So it's really interesting. And my Where mom will go nuts for all the Ronstadt stuff, uh, as well as the Beatles stuff. I'm, I'm to tell you the truth. I just have to thank you for the JD Souther album, Black Rose. Oh, thank you. Which thank you. I, that was I, JD's brilliant. He's so oh, underrated. One of my, I named my daughter yes. after him. My daughter's name is Southerly. But wow. I took the S O U T H E R out of JD, which I thought was Souther. Yeah, so, you know, he'll never meet yeah. one day yeah. when I meet him, he'll look at me and go, you're weird, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way, no, that's great. There's great entrepreneurial stories with every person we speak to. But I think that the skill here of being able to identify greatness in others is also an amazing, you know, skill set because, you know, you're obviously uh, a creator and a creative, True. but being able to bring that out in other people as a uh, manager, producer, coach, that's not easy. And it's, it requires people to, to check certain parts of their personality that are normally yes. very present. And I've seen that in T-Bone, who's, by the way, an extremely amazing producer, but not necessarily like an entrepreneur like you are. I couldn't see him necessarily running a label, but I, as a producer, how he does it is- oh, T-Bone's great. I'm, I'm yeah. a fan and a friend. He's, he's brilliant. And yeah, he's and, great and I've seen it in the hip hop world, like, you know, the way that you describe, how, you know, uh, all the sort of, uh, ability to find things and also bring it to the right people. You know, there's four exceptionally talented Beatles, and, and I'm sure that you figuring out how to A and R and where to you know park these projects must have been a challenge too. Yes, no, I, I enjoyed doing all of that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm sorry the time was by so quickly. I know I talked too much, but I, no, I tend to digress. I, I follow everything where it leads, and it can go on for hours. Thank uh, you, Peter. Let so me just much. say this as yeah. your occupational therapist, Jared. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Peter is, you say, you know, you compliment him with his talent. I, I think you have similar skills. You are Thank able you. To, to come up with ideas and turn people to do things that they never really thought they'd be doing. So I'm going to be Peter yes. in my, in moving forward. I'm going to, I'm going to so figure out his roadmap and yeah. I'm going to just follow it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Thank you so much for being generous with your time. Be safe. It's all working out. During all of the, the shenanigans, this Michigas, as my grandmother calls it right now. And, uh, you know, the world's going to return to normal soon enough. Brilliant. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You're the best. Um, good Thanks, good to meet you, Zach. And, and you thank too, you very much, Jared. See you soon. All right. All right.